0: Lock Talk Radio. <laughs>
1: running the second part of the uh, discussion that we started last week on situational awareness. We have uh, Rick Smith with us again tonight, and uh, he's going to to be uh, continuing where we left off. He'll give us a a little recap, and he'll continue where we left off, and we'll be discussing the the elements that make up situational awareness. Things that you can do to try and include these and expand these uh, in your in your daily life. All right, let me go ahead and get started. We've got, uh, as always with blog talk, we had uh, a few uh, software glitches loading the show. I, I complain, but at the same time, I know that they run. Uh, I think the last one time I looked, it was like 22,000 uh, different shows that they're running <coughs> and uh, in all different categories. And we're still, if you look at the categories, we're still in the top 10. We have been ever since we started the the show uh, all, over five years ago. Ten, uh, when we're not at the number one, which we stay at, uh, I would say a good 80% of the time in conservative politics, and I want to thank you guys for listening, for doing that for the show. Also, I think I told you uh, last week or the week before that I monetized the show, so I want to get this out at the beginning of the show. I think I told you guys at the end of the show last time, but I want to get this out at the beginning of the show. The way that it works is that as you are listening to the show, if you're looking at the homepage there, as you're listening to the show, click on some of the links that are on the homepage, the advertising links. You don't have to buy anything, but click on those links, look at the ads that the sponsors have put up there, and uh, the Battle Road Radio Show will get a portion of the advertising dollars. That will help keep us uh, in business here and keep us on the on the air. You guys, while you're listening, if you'll click on some of the, uh, the sponsored links. All right, uh, I'm going to bring... Uh, Richard Smith on and we're gonna get started. Richard, welcome back to the show. Hold on. There we go. Is that better? Welcome to the show, Richard. Hey, hey thanks much.
2: Good to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, thanks for the uh the work that you did on, on putting the show together, putting the, the work and stuff and and uh and for the great job last week. And I hope that uh if you guys didn't hear last week's show, that you go back and listen to and then listen to the show, mate the two up together, so you get a nice uh, seamless uh, discussion because we had uh, about two hours last week uh, discussion on situational awareness and, and a lot of the baseline stuff. And I believe that uh, Richard, you're going to give us a, a little bit of a, a recap, right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. All right. You're going to yeah. give us a little yeah. bit cool. of a recap, and then we're going to get started in it. So since we're already running a few minutes late. Let's go ahead and jump right into it.
2: Okay. Uh, if you listen to the podcast, uh, podcast from last week, then you'll know what I'm talking about. And if not, I'll give you a real quick uh, recap, and you still need to go back and listen to it. But um, this uh, basically comes from a book called Left of Bang, and it that comes from the USMC uh, Combat Hunter course, And it's readily adaptable to our uh, use here in the civilian world. But uh, initially, it's going to help us. Um, and our, with our situational awareness, you have to use your situational awareness to establish a baseline. One of the first things we learned learned from the book and that we discussed was how to establish a baseline. Think of a baseline as a horizontal line drawn on a page, and anything that isn't normal causes little rises and dips above and below that horizontal line. We call those anomalies uh, anomalies if they deviate from the normal too far should get our attention Uh, we need to look for clusters of behaviors to indicate anomalies not a single indicator Uh, so if you see a single thing going on try to back it up with a couple of other things to prove that what you think is correct we want to look for what we call honest oh sure i had one today um i was at an apple store and a guy bops down the sidewalk kind of looks in the window and then starts headed for the door He's dressed in boots, jeans, and a hoodie with the hood pulled up and his hands shoved in his pockets. That got my attention because it's pretty warm outside. Everybody's dressed in, some, some people wearing shorts and T-shirts. So that got my attention. That's an anomaly, right? Everybody's dressed in shorts and T-shirts. Here's a guy with a hoodie. So that spiked above the norm. That spiked above the baseline, and it got my attention. Um, he came on into the store. And I'll go into that probably a little bit later. I hope hope to tell you what happened after that. But that's an anomaly, right? Everybody else was dressed a certain way, and he deviated significantly from that norm. And so it got my attention. That's an anomaly. But that one single indicator didn't really prove anything. I started looking for other things that would prove that he was a threat. And we try to find three things to prove to ourselves that, you know, this person is a threat. We call these clusters. We try to look for honest signals, what we call honest signals. Honest signals are um, kind of an emotional manifestation of uh, an emotional stress. In other words, it's an autonomic response that we can observe. It's something that somebody does as, as a result of stress that we can see on them. And the biggest one is we want to observe human behavior, become experts at looking at human behavior and being able to predict what people are going to do based on how they're behaving. And to do that we divide human behavior into six domains. Now last week we discussed the first three. Uh, kinesics, biometrics, proxemics. Kinesics is just the study of human movement or body language if you will, both conscious and unconscious. And we want to look for clusters of movement cl- clusters of this body language and we also want to make sure we look below the shoulders because as we discussed uh, the face is probably the least reliable indicator of anything um, other indicators around your body are much more reliable we learn to start at the feet and work upward and watch what their body is doing starting with the feet working up <clears throat> and the clusters that we're looking for are three there's a lot of threes in this thing The clusters we're looking for are, the first, dominant versus submissive. So is their posture, the way they stand, the way they hold their feet, their hands, their arms, their torso, is it a dominant position or is it submissive? The second we look for is uncomfortable versus comfortable. Is the person comfortable in this situation, and in this position, or are they uncomfortable with it? The third we look for is interested versus uninterested. Are they interested in what they're doing or what's going on around them, or are they uninterested in what they're doing, what's going on around them? So the clusters to look for are dominant versus submissive. Second is uncomfortable versus comfortable. Three is interested versus uninterested. And then we have a couple of other things that, that sort of give away people's intent. The first one is kinetic slips, and uh, that's when you say one thing but you you actually indicate something else with your body uh, uh, your body language. If if you see a kinetic slip where somebody says yes, but their body is telling you no, you always go with the body. You go with the body language because of those honest signals that we talked about. The second one you might notice is smuggling behavior. And although it's not actually smuggling, they may not be smuggling anything, smuggling behavior means hiding something. They're they're trying to hide something, some activity or some actual object or something. And uh, another one we might notice is acting naturally and remember we talked about um uh, people are very poor at multitasking and the only time they act naturally is when they're naturally doing something if they're not naturally doing something then they're acting and they typically don't act naturally very well Uh, an example there i think we talked about um um somebody who was in the same store you were and they were acting like they were shopping, but you could tell they were observing you. They were just surveilling you. So they're trying to do two things at once, and they're not doing either one of them very well. So the first uh, domain we looked at was kinesics. second one we looked at was uh, biometric clues. Biometrics are, are these honest signals that we talked about. They're autonomic responses. Your brain just makes you do them. You can't help it. And they're things that we can see and they contribute to these clusters that we're looking for. Um, Again, start at the feet, work up, watch their biometrics, watch their body language, watch how they move, and see if they're dominant or submissive, if they're uncomfortable versus comfortable, if they're interested versus uninterested. And also look for masking, hiding, or pacifying actions. Uh, Masking what they're trying to do or masking some part of their body wearing sunglasses could be because it's bright outside, but wearing sunglasses inside is an anomaly, an anomaly, right? Because nobody does that. Why would someone wear sunglasses inside? Maybe they're masking what they're looking at. They're trying to hide their eyes. Um, comforting actions, pacifying would be uh, touching their face, rubbing their neck, rubbing their, their hands together, rubbing their thigh, at their seat, that kind of thing, because the body is trying to
0: uh,
2: maintain equilibrium, and when of stress is introduced, it, the body tries to burn that energy off, and they do that by some, these pacifying actions. If a person is close enough, you can look at facial uh, cues, but remember, they are the most uh, unreliable. There are people out there that are world-class focal players, and, and they can get away with those things, so mostly we're looking from the shoulders down. So that covers kinesics and uh, biometric cues. The last uh, of, the three, of the six domains that we covered last week, the first three, is uh, proxemics. And proxemics comes from the word proximity. And so it's something close, right, the way people use the space around them. So the way people interact in the space around them is important to us because you can use it to predict behavior. Um, we learned the two basic rules. Number one, people move toward things that they're attracted to or feel safe with. Number two, people move away from things that they fear or find unattractive. Um, well, we then, can look, look at it, exceptions like uh, firefighters, police, soldiers, stuff exactly like that. the guys that, that run to the to the problem, exactly. And we're going to talk a little bit about that later too. So, right. um, but you can look at proxemics from from uh, two different standpoints. The First, being distance, and the second actually being movement. Uh, distance. Think of proximity as four different zones and for our purposes we're going to look at three we're going to lump the last two together but we we said that the intimate distance was arm's length or less Uh, that's the distance you typically reserve for your spouse your boyfriend girlfriend children people that you really trust because inside of arm's length is where you're most vulnerable the next proximate zone goes a little bit further out it's the personal zone it's arm's length or a little bit more that's where you keep your friends and acquaintances that's um where you conduct your daily activities um just as you go through your daily routine people stay typically an arm's length or maybe a little bit further away from you and you're comfortable with that last one being social and public zones we lump those two together because for our our purposes they're pretty much the same that's the distance that we keep strangers at that's our safety zones anybody outside of that distance we feel safe because we have time we distance is always time and we have time to develop the situation, see what's going on, so we're safer at that distance. Um, for instance, think about, you ever uh, had to step onto a crowded elevator? You know, and as soon as you step onto the elevator, you're invading, you're invading everybody's intimate zone, everybody's personal zone, everybody's in everybody else's intimate zone. So what do you do to try to find a threat? You look for intent, right? You look, You go back and you look at, those biometric cues, are they interested in you or uninterested in you? Are they being dominant? Are they being submissive? Are they comfortable or are they uncomfortable? So you look at those to try to figure out what their intent is to determine if there's any danger in a, in a situation like a crowded elevator or in a crowd. Uh, so you can look at it as distance. You can also look at it as proximity, uh, as movement. Uh, we talked about how a predator moves entirely different. Than prey moves. And what's the difference? The difference is intent. That predator has, you know, ill intent for his prey. And so you can tell by the way he moves. Movement can be classified three different ways. First one is movement to, second is movement away, and the third one is just idle movement. Movement to can be either friendly or hostile, right? So somebody moving towards you, it could be because they haven't seen you in a long time. That could be a friend. Or it could be someone hostile to you. It could be someone stalking you. Someone, you know, intends to make you a victim of some kind. Um, moving away can be evasion, or it could be just moving from one point of interest, one thing, one object that interests you or holds your your interest, to another object that you've seen that holds your interest. <laughs> Idle movement could be just that. It could be, uh, we, we talked about, you know, guys sitting around at the mall waiting on the women to finish shopping. That's idle movement. We're not really going anywhere. We're not really doing anything. However, idle movement could also be surveillance, right? So someone just milling about and not going anywhere could be surveilling the area, could be casing the joint, could be watching you to try to figure out if there's some some way they can uh, harm you. And then we talked about proxenic pushes and pulls. We have to understand that there are there is movements toward and movements away are considered pulls and pushes a movement toward is a pull a movement away from something is a push a proximic pull in other words something pulling you toward it is not a perceived threat or some kind of relationship exists if I see you you know on the other side of a, of a crowded room and I move toward you it's because a relationship exists I, I know you I seek to you know talk to you that kind of thing um a, a victim. Think about a victim creates a, um, a proxemic pull to a criminal. Um, you, you may say, be standing there minding your own business, and somebody moving toward you. You've created some kind of a proxemic pull to a criminal. Maybe you don't carry yourself in a confident manner. Maybe you're thumbing through that roll of hundred dollar bills. You know, there's some sort of proxemic pull making that criminal want to move towards you. Um, it also indicates that whatever is doing the drawing, in other words, that's thumbing through that roll of $100 bills, that, that action or that person or that object is outside the baseline. It goes well above or below the baseline because it's creating a proximic pool. A negative proxemic pool is where bad guys operate. They want to be somewhere that they've got the best chance of success. And so, you know, the most potential victims, that kind of thing. So, for that reason, it's very important that we be able to recognize a negative proxemic pull. Um, what would what would um, what would constitute a negative proxemic pull? Well, you you've got to get to your car after you finish shopping at the mall, but it's really dark out there, and you're parked on the other end of the parking lot. Well, that's a negative proxemic pull. Um, you have to you have to go there, but you've got the warning flags telling you that this is this is a dangerous thing um uh, proximic push is essentially the opposite it's movement to avoid something or or actually part of a flight component i guess you'd call it um a sudden increase in space indicates a threat if you're standing in a crowded room and everybody starts bolting and running for you know all all uh, points of the compass that indicates a threat right now something's going on and everybody's creating distance between themselves and that threat so anytime you're in a position where you're not really sure, ask yourself, are you being pushed away from something? Or are you being pulled toward something? Try to figure out what that is and if it's above or below that baseline that you've established. Um, is your personal space being encroached upon? That's a big one. You, you, everybody has fighty senses when it comes to that. You only let certain people get within a certain distance of you. Are you being encroached upon? And last, proxemics uh, can be used to identify relationships. Um, and a push or a pull would signal a change in those relationships. So that's covering the first half very, very quickly. uh, We talked about establishing a baseline, looking for anomalies or clusters, and we're using the six domains, and we discussed the first three, kinesics, biometrics, and last, proxemics. And uh, so tonight... We're going to cover the last three domains of behavior and then move on to how do we put this all together into something that we can use and how can we practice it, okay? So the next of the six domains that we want to talk about is called geographics. And if you think about geographics, I typically think of a place of geography, and that's not really what we're talking about. It can be, but it's not really what we're talking about. Geographics is a pattern of behavior within an environment, how people fit in, what their intentions are, that kind of thing. So if, you, if you've if you noticed, every one of these things goes back to behavior. Every one of them is behavior, and geographics is no different. There is such a thing as the home field advantage, right? If, if the home team has the advantage, and that's just sort of an innate thing that people understand. Uh, people have more confidence in an area that they're familiar with. Uh, an area that they're not familiar with, they move slowly or, or cautiously, a little bit more deliberation. Uh, going back to the guy that I saw today, he he comes walking into the store. He's wearing a hood, got his hands shoved in his pockets. Everybody else is dressed very lightly, and he walks in the door and starts walking straight towards the back of the store, very confidently, very familiar. I w- I started picking up clues immediately. So I knew he was familiar with the area. Um, natural lines of drift is just a, a big word for places where people go. The path that they that they use. Um, natural lines of drift are are typically when you travel from one place to another. People are somewhat lazy. They'll take the, the simplest, safest path. Right, to get free there. of obstacles. Yeah. They they want to go the easiest way there is. It may not be the shortest distance to get there, but it's the easiest distance to get there in most cases. Uh, if you look for these uh, natural lines of drift, they will become apparent. You, you can see a path through the wood, and it's because that's where the animals naturally drift to. That's where they naturally go to go from point A to point B. Um, in, in our world, you know, concrete and skyscrapers, that kind of thing. Sidebar. Um, our natural lines of, of drift. Um, you can also see a hole in the fence. You know, that's like a funnel, right? Everybody's, everybody who wants to take the shortcut goes through the hole in the fence. And, and I'll just give you an example of how to look for things here. If you were trying to find, say, an 18-wheel truck, a big truck, and you had the choice of looking uh, in a parking lot or the interstate, where would you look? Because 18-wheelers, they could be found in parking lots, right? And they can also be found on interstates. But where would you look to have the better chance of seeing the truck? You know, you'd look on the interstate because there's a much better chance of finding them there. That's their natural line of drift. That's where they go. That's how they operate. That being said, if you're observing a crowd or observing a, a, a situation, anyone who doesn't use the natural line of drift that everybody else is is doing that's an anomaly that's a spike that goes above or below that baseline that we've established everybody walks down this sidewalk why is that guy hugging the wall of the alley you know and looking around he's not following the natural line of drift he's jumping over the fence behind the store that's not a natural line of drift nobody does that right now in the discussion of um of geographics the two big areas that we want to talk about are habitual areas and anchor points. A habitual area uh, is a place that anybody can come or go at any time. That's a habitual area. People habitually use that place. The other one, the anchor point, is the opposite. An anchor point is a place where some kind of um, ownership has been established by some person or some group or that kind of thing. In other words, there's some kind of criteria that has to be met before you're allowed to gain entry to that particular spot. That's an anchor point. Think of it this way. A mall is a habitual area. Anybody can come or go there at will. But if you think about you're staying in a store, at the back of the store, there's a door marked employees only, and it opens up into the back of the store and the the stock room and out to the loading dock and that kind of thing. But that area is an anchor point because only certain people are, are allowed to come and go there. And they have to have they have some have to meet some kind of criteria. They've got a name badge that or ID that shows that they work for that store, that kind of thing, or they're a, mer- a, a vendor or something like that. So the mall, the entire mall, you can walk, go anywhere you want to, but you you don't belong back there. That is an anchor point. Um, criminals view habitual areas as places of opportunity. You know they're going to go to the place where. There's more people, there's there's more prey, there's easy marks. So they look for habitual areas. Um, while they're there, they try to blend in and, and look like everybody else. So it's your job to pick them out based on how they behave, right? You look for these little divergences above and below the, the baseline. You look for these clusters that we talked about. And the three clusters that we look for are dom- uh, dominant or submissive, comfortable versus uncomfortable and interested versus uninterested and that'll tell you who belongs and who doesn't and it all has to go back and be compared to the baseline what's everybody else doing what how are they uh, behaving keep in mind that um there may be anchor points within a habitual area that are off limits the one i just gave the back of the store you know not everybody can walk through the door but that's also a clue for us if you're in the store and everybody, no matter how they're dressed, no matter what they're wearing, no matter who they work for, everybody is headed to the back of the store and going through the door, marked employees only, leaving the habitual area, going into the anchor point. What should you be doing? <laughs> yeah. Well, be ought to be headed that way yourself, or at least trying to figure out right. why, right? Try to figure out what – check the baseline, figure out where the anomaly is, where it's a threat, so you can use that to your advantage. Uh, an anchor point is typically a home base um, that a person or group operates from, and when certain people are, are admitted there. A, a town can be a habitual area. everybody's, you know, can go anywhere they want to, but there may be a specific street or street or neighborhood or block that is con- controlled by a gang. That is an anchor point. Only certain people are welcome there. Only certain people are going to go there, and so it's important for us to know the difference and be able to pick out these anchor points. Right. Yeah. Dad, um, you've yeah, got gated communities. You've
1: got uh, uh, you know different kinds of of areas where folks are uh, where they're not, they're not allowed free access, or that uh, right. or that you need some type of uh, you know entry code to get in, stuff like that.
2: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's an anchor point if, if 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 you have to have if you have to yeah, meet a certain yeah. criteria to be there, that's an anchor point um, Anchor points can be fixed, they can be mobile, they can be temporary um because they're defined by behavior, not a physical location, not how a place looks or by the geography. Remember all of this goes back to behavior so an anchor point or an uh, a habitual area. Is defined by behavior, so you're constantly looking for behavior to, to identify this stuff. All of this stuff. Most crime takes place uh, close to the criminal's anchor point. Now, why would that be? Remember, we talked about the home field advantage—the place he's most familiar with. Yeah, most of these guys—they know exactly which, where the hole in the fence is. You know, where the foothold is to jump the wall. They know all this stuff, so they can move and and uh, and get around and do what they want to do. And their their uh, anchor point. Um, one way to look at it is only certain people have access to this location. Outsiders have to be screened; they have to meet some kind of criteria to enter, uh, as in the like you mentioned the um, uh, the gated community. But take it a step further and think about a place that is protected and defended, a place that has lookouts or outposts, you know, for early warning, that kind of thing. Um, that can be going on right under your nose. That can be going on right in the same city where you live. And unless you're looking for it, you won't, you won't notice that kind of behavior. You could wander into a place where you're absolutely not supposed to be. And one of the marks of an anchor point is, uh, trespassing results in retaliation. And you don't want to be the one that's there being retaliated against. Right. Um, Another clue for you could be people go out of their way to avoid a certain place, a certain person, a certain group of people. Uh, if the local people are avoiding it, then we just talked about prox- uh, proxemics, right? That's a that's a proxemic push to the outsiders. It's pushing them away. It's also a proxemic pull to the members. To if it were if it's a gang, gang members. Are pulled to it. That's their anchor point. They want to go there. So watching how how ordinary people, people like you and me, behave and what they avoid should give us a clue. All
1: right. If you're walking down and, um, the
2: street and you see
1: uh, and you see up ahead, there's a uh, there's a say you're in a, a downtown area like uh, I know you used to have your hub in New York. I'm sure that uh, if you're walking down the street and there's like a group of seven or eight guys you know sitting on the uh uh you know in front of the building or something like that and you start noticing that people that are walking ahead of you they start crossing to the opposite side of the street before they get there then uh that's something that you need to kind of pay attention to
2: that's way above the uh, baseline right well above the baseline yeah. for behavior so so that should wake you up that's an anomaly exactly um and and that speaks to The fact that anchor points don't have to be a permanent thing. They're not a place. They're not a building necessarily. It could be a temporary um, anchor point. There could be, like you say, four or five bad guys standing there just harassing people. Um, That's an anchor point. Well, what happens when they leave? It goes right back to being a habitual area. People walk by there without a problem, right? So the way the locals behave can be a clue and um the way people ahead of, around you are behaving can be a clue as to whether you're approaching or you're actually in an anchor point um it's very important to us to to try to find these criminal anchor points right if we want to stay safe and we can do that by just watching human activity go back to the first couple of domains that we talked about kinesics and bio uh the biometrics right that's going to clue you into a criminal criminal anchor point um Look, look at proxemics. If, if people are pushed away from something or a certain type of person is pulled towards something, that's going to give you uh, an idea of what may or may not be an anchor point. Uh, biometrics are just honest signals, right? Somebody is is uh, expressing a reaction to uh, some kind of response to stress. Um, what, what about graffiti? There's another one. We're going to get into that pretty, pretty hard here in a minute. But g- graffiti often... Uh, Indicates ownership, right? The the Crips or the Bloods or whoever uh, tags a building and says this is this is our street, this is our building, and so it denotes ownership. Well, ownership is one of the big clues for an anchor point. Another thing you might notice is um, buffer zone. Yeah,
1: and you'll see you'll see the uh, you'll see those tags. You'll see the sometimes it's like it's kind of hard to read the lettering or something like that, but there'll be letters or numbers. Sometimes they'll be done stylishly, but you'll see those on uh, street signs, on walls. If you stop at a gas station and go in the bathroom, you'll see them there. Uh, you know, you'll see the, you can see the, the tags that the that the gangs use, and they put
2: uh, just about everywhere. Yep. And that's a big clue. We're go- and we're going to get into that. That's uh, the next thing that we're going to get into. We're going to discuss that at length. That's a big clue. I'll go back to the buffer zones here real quick. It's kind of a it's kind of a funny thing in that criminals are very comfortable where they are at their anchor point, their neighborhood, so to speak. And so what it does is their their criminal activity actually kind of creates concentric rings out from that. And there may actually be a buffer zone. In other words, um, out on their their outer ring, outer edge of of what they consider to be their turf, will be a very high crime rate. And then, coming back toward their um their anchor point, all of a sudden it it keeps getting less and less and less until there's very low crime in this buffer zone right around their anchor point. Why is that? they don't want to attract attention to themselves right? um police go where the crimes are, and that's one thing I know uh in new york the the area where the apartment was there was had a very heavy uh, Russian mafia influence, and there was no crime. There was none. <laughs> so, well, yeah, there, there, there was, was no street crime. <laughs> right, 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 right. Obvious to you and me. Uh, nothing like yeah. that. People weren't getting mugged. Or little old ladies weren't getting their purses stolen, anything like that. It didn't happen because they didn't want the attention. And I, I was convinced uh, you stole a little old lady's purse, you were going to be in the East River wearing you know, cement shoes by sundown right. because they did not want the attention. Mm-hmm. So that's just because there is no crime doesn't mean there isn't a criminal element there that there isn't danger there in other words right and uh, so think of that as a buffer zone okay so just to um to summarize then for uh geographics just a few just a few points um people act differently in places that they're familiar with as opposed to those that they're not familiar with just a home field advantage right um natural lines of drift these are pathways that allow a simple, safe movement while exerting the least amount of effort. Um, people who do not follow a natural line of drift should pique your interest. That's 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 a clue. Habitual areas are places that anybody can go without restriction. Anchor points are places that only people who meet a certain criteria uh, can go. Identifying anchor points is done by behavior, not location. So you're looking at the behavior of the people there and, and into the vicinity to try to figure out what is an nice anchor point. Anything you might want to add to the geographics? The main thing for me well, was just to think like, of it. Make sure you don't think of it as a place. It's it's still behavior Right within a, within a certain area.
1: Right. And like you said, the uh, 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 people really need to uh, and the thing is that for most people you notice you notice the things that uh, Richard's talking about you just don't know uh why you notice them or what they mean or why uh what brought it to your attention but if you see uh if you see a bunch of folks headed uh uh i don't know if there's something going on uh and a bunch of people are rushing to it or they're rushing away from it if there's one person that is kind of uh, fighting the crowd to go the other way, or if he's not paying attention to them at all and uh and moving away or moving toward uh in opposition to the crowd, uh that should pique your interest and you should that should be a mark that you use as a starting point to see if, if the additional clusters are going to spring up on that individual.
2: Exactly. Because they 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 will start to bug out at you after that. Once you've seen one or two, they start to kind of fall into place. Let me tell you what happened today, then, and, and this kind of falls right into that. Based on what we've got so far with uh, the um, uh, behavioral, uh, you know, biometric cues and and proxemics and things like this. Okay, so I'm at the Apple Store, and the guy comes, walks across the front. I can see him, boots, jeans, gray hoodie, hand shoved in his pockets. The hood is pulled up tight over his head. Everybody else is dressed for summer. I mean, it, it was 70 degrees out there today. So that spiked my interest. That's an anomaly. He he walked in the front door, and immediately um, made contact with the lady in the front that, you know, kind of screens you and sees see what you need and that kind of thing. She looked. She glanced at him. She glanced at her. They exchanged maybe two words. I have no idea what they were because I was way back in the store. They exchanged maybe two words. Uh, they both kind of grinned. And he walked right past her. Now he's, he's now he's focused on the back of the store. He's not looking at anybody in particular, and he's walking straight towards the back counter in the store. And it took me, from the time I noticed him, until I wrote him off as not being a threat, was no more than five seconds. That's all it took. And it was basically I was just sitting there bored because the wife was looking at stuff, and I was practicing this stuff. And here's what I observed. People would come in the store, they would meet this person at the front. She would take some information and send them to a specific spot, always over to the side, one of the tables over at the side, or she would walk them to the back. And this continued. Well, every now and then somebody would walk in, exchange pleasantries with her, walk to the back of the store, and go through the door in the corner marked employees only. I saw about three people do it before Mr. Hoodie showed up. So when Mr. Hoodie showed up, my first clue was, He's not dressed appropriately. There's something going on, and that spikes my interest. So now I'm looking for more clusters. I'm looking for the biometrics. He's walking in. He's confident. He's been here before. He's familiar with the place. He exchanges pleasantries with the lady at the front. He walks straight to the back. And I'm telling you, five seconds from the time I first saw him, I said to myself, he's an employee. He's going to walk through that door. And that's exactly what I did. So I had established a baseline based on the behavior that I've been watching for about the past you know 25 30 minutes and even though he didn't fit that baseline to begin with I couldn't find any other clusters that supported uh, the idea the first idea that I had that he was a threat he, he right he essentially uh, proves himself not to be a threat and so then I could discount him as he walked past and start watching other people okay So just a little example there. Um, The the next one we're going to talk about, the next of the six domains, we're going to talk about the fifth domain, and it's called iconography from the word icon. Um, Iconography is human expression through symbols. It's visual language, pure and simple. Flags, tattoos, graffiti, either present or absent. Um, It's everywhere. If you think about it, we communicate with T-shirts, bumper stickers, tattoos, graffiti, signs, posters, billboards, things like that. They're everywhere, and they're pretty cool because they don't have to say anything, and they don't have to move, but they communicate uh, an idea or some sort of affiliation or belief or something with just a picture. That's all it takes. An icon uh, is any symbol that promotes a, a group's belief or a person's belief, their affiliations, or their presence. Icons draw allies and convert <coughs> to them, and they intimidate or repel enemies. Icons can communicate com- complex messages with a simple picture or symbol. And I, you know, the first thing that popped into my head when I when I read that one, the guy bopping down the street in the Jay, uh Jay Guevara T-shirt. You've seen him, yeah. right? So it's, it, it communicates one of two things to you. He's a Marxist who worships a mass murderer, or he's a, a college-chained adult that has no earthly idea what that even means, right? Right. <laughs> There's no in-between for that guy. So – but that well, was the first thing that was funny to have. That was the first thing that popped into my head. But why? Because it's such a uh, powerful image, it's known worldwide. It's just a picture. It's a black and white uh, silhouette of the face of Che Guevara. And everybody's seen it. Everybody knows – or everybody's familiar with it. They may not even know who Che Guevara was. But it, com- it communicates a complex message with just an instantaneous an instantaneous picture. Just you know exactly who that is and what they stand for.
1: Right. The same you, thing goes for, uh,
2: for the uh, – cut off vests that you see uh
1: bikers wearing you'll see a biker yeah. wearing a cut off vest and you'll see on the back of it will be uh some type of an image some type of a patch and then there'll be a rocker above and a rocker below you know telling you the name of the uh of the group now they're not all bad uh you know there's a lot of uh you know a lot of uh, non uh 1% groups that uh that use that same type of iconography but it should be a uh, it should be a uh, you know a, an awareness point when you see that to know that uh, you could be in
2: the presence of uh, a criminal element. Right. It 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 definitely deviates from the from the baseline. Not everybody's dressed that way, right? So and and why is why is iconography important to us? Here's here's why. It's remember we talked about the honest signals. These are just you know. Um, um, Responses to an an emotional stress of some kind something you can't help your brain just makes your body do it This is the opposite of that. This is not a natural or autonomic response. This is somebody who made um, a choice They made a choice to wear that vest. He made a choice to wear that t-shirt and therefore um, It's representative of some possibly some deeply held core beliefs uh, for that person or or some sort of affiliation um, with that person A guy wearing a Yankee hat and a a Yankee sweatshirt, you know, I'm pretty sure he's a Yankee fan. He's affiliated with the Yankees. We can figure this stuff out. He doesn't have to say a word because it's not autonomic. He made a choice to wear these things. So it's very important uh, to us in in that respect. Iconography uh, can be divided into two realms. The first one is icons or indicators that appear on people. That's T shirts, tattoos, uh, even jewelry, even uh, accessories that people would wear, hats, things like that. Um, well, things like, uh things like uh
0: things
1: like badges, you know, so you've got a badge yeah. and a uniform. Yeah. You know?
2: Yeah. Exactly. Those are big ones, right? Uniforms are are very big. You can you could see somebody, you know, across the other side of the mall and know instantly that person's a nurse, that person's a doctor, that person's a policeman. Simply because of what you know, the the icon they're wearing on their body. Um, the other icon, so that's the icons that appear on people. The other icon or indicators are those that appear in a geographical environment. Now those are easy. Those are billboards, posters, graffiti, things like that. So it's actually out there, not on a person. It's just out there in the environment. The indicators and iconography on a person can tell us a lot. It tells us what that person supports or does not support, um, particularly if the message on the shirt is a negative. Uh, the guy that's got the T-shirt with the big smiley, yellow smiley face on the front, um, probably not so much. That's not so much a negative indicator, although, right, you never let your guard down. He, he could be the nut that <laughs> can they try something. You don't know. But the guy with the hat that says La Bay on it, what does that tell you? That person made a decision. Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> that person made a decision to buy something to put on his head to advertise to the world a lot of things, right? There's all you could read all kinds of stuff into Molon Lave, or he could be he just thought it was a cool hat. But right, it's above or below that baseline. Not everybody has that hat, and if you know what it is, you may have some idea what he what he thinks. You know what what uh, type of person he is. Um, they can tell us about uh, their associations. Um, you know, a bunch of guys standing around with the same car hat with the same patch on it are associated somehow, some kind of an organization, right? You talked about the motorcycle clubs with the vests, things like that. You know that that's an association of some kind. Uh, the other thing we can t- tell is the person's status or their assumed status. The assumed status means what what they believe their status to be, right? And And you've all seen that. Um, my favorite is, um, you're walking in the airport and, and not so much now, but a couple of years ago, this was really bad. There were women walking around with these, um, sweat pants on and they would say juicy across the back or sexy across the back. Right. And I've always held that if you've got to tell somebody you're sexy, you're not. That's just my opinion. But here's a status that they put out there for everybody. Of what they believe they are, what they believe their status to be, and you know, believe me, there was a lot of people that had no business wearing that uh, at all. So it's not maybe not just their status, but what they believe their status to be, and what people believe about themselves is a, another very important thing that we have to pay attention to. That could that could have ramifications for us. And here's the thing that, that I thought was really interesting too: some studies uh, have found that within the criminal population, we're talking about um, tattoos and uh, uh, accessories and things like that, that within the criminal population, the symbol, say a, a tattoo symbol carries 10 times the meaning or value of the same thing displayed by a non-criminal. So in other words, right. if I've got a tattoo, it might just be uh, you know, an, an alcohol-induced souvenir from spring break of... You know, 95, but somebody with a teardrop tattooed on their face, right, could mean something entirely different. They did that um, out of, a, it, I mean, think about it. They're, they're permanent. Tattoos are permanent. It's not like you're going to put it on and next week change your mind and put a different one on. These things are permanent. So there's some kind of deeply held belief or value or position held by that person. Um, and normally the
1: the teardrop uh in uh, a lot of prison and gang circles indicates uh uh violent behavior or uh, the person is willing to commit or has committed violent behavior uh if you see things like on the uh on the motorcycle vest of the uh you know the bikers and stuff you'll see uh like the number thirteen will be on their vest or tattooed on them. That's 13 is for the uh, the 13th letter of the alphabet which is M which stands for marijuana indicating that they are either a user or a dealer or a subscriber to to marijuana. Things like that, uh, different codes
2: that especially right. the criminal element subscribe to right they, they there may be even be uh m- say multiple iterations of small tattoos that indicate Years of car- incarceration, things like that. That you know, you and I, we have no clue what that means. But it it has a very, very definite, strong meaning to them and people that know what it means. People that have been incarcerated. Um, we'll we'll get back to that here in just a minute. Let's go. Let's keep going with uh, icons in the in the geographic environment and talk about what they might tell us. In the geographic uh, environment, we were talking about graffiti and and flags and things like that. Um, they can tell us the intent or the belief of those that are imprinting that icon, right, the people that tagged the building, the people that painted that mural, that kind of thing. The second thing they can tell us is if groups within the area are in conflict, um, if there is an area that two gangs claim, uh, you would not want to be there because there's a high, a high uh, probability of some gunfire, and you might be you know, between the two warring factions you don't want to be there. One of the indications you might find in the geographic environment is um graffiti that is written over. So there's a gang symbol that's been painted over with another gang symbol, right? This is my this is my territory. No, this is my territory. Um the third thing it might tell us is the relationship between the people that live in the area and the people that actually left the icons, the people that painted that or people that left their mark. Um if you allow graffiti to remain in an area, uh, it tends to make you think that the people in that area are sympathetic to you know, whatever the beliefs of those people are. Um, if they're out there scrubbing the wall every day, getting the graffiti off, you can pretty well bet they, they don't agree with them. Um, right. And, and what is graffiti? Graffiti is just writing or drawing in a public place uh, without the consent of the owner of that place, right? You, you say, New York is just notorious for it. They paint every wall, every door, every thing – you know, there are places up there that have graffiti on that you wonder how did they get there? You know, <laughs> unbelievable. Um, and speaking, when we talk about graffiti out in the geographic area. Uh, there's three different kinds of graffiti. And this stuff gets pretty deep if you think about it. You think graffiti is just graffiti. There's actually three different kinds if you think about it territorial, which is the tagging that we talked about earlier, right? If you see a gang sign, they claim that area. Um, second type of uh, graffiti would be political or ideological. This is just a statement of political belief kind of thing. Uh, um, (laughs) Funny it may sound, landing in Boston many, many, many years ago, landing in Boston, and there's a lot of old forts out there in the harbor, and on one of the big concrete uh, casements, as I flew over it, I was probably maybe 300 feet above it, and I looked down, and in gigantic 10-foot letters, somebody had painted, Kennedy sucks, Okay. Um, there's a political or ideological statement. However, a week later it was gone. So we, you know, we go right back to uh, what does that mean when they remove the graffiti? Well, it means they, they uh, oppose the viewpoint, right? So a little bit of both there. The third thing um, is gra- graffiti-wise is threats. Some graffiti is just threatening. Uh, it attempts to intimidate um, some people, or it attempts to intimidate or, or uh, to. Uh, incite people to act a certain way, say. Um, The most – probably the most likely stuff that we see is territorial graffiti, and that's probably the most interest to us too because it indicates ownership. And we talked about ownership. is important. Why? Because it indicates an anchor point, and anchor points are where they operate from. So territorial graffiti is is pretty important for that uh, reason. The other thing you you notice too is – the density of the graffiti increases the closer you get to the core of that group. So you may see a tag here and there, and then if you start seeing more and more and more tags, more and more density uh, of the tags, you can be sh- assured that you're getting closer to the core of that group. One of the one of the groups we have here, the gangs that we have here, the most prominent one here is MS-13. And I don't know if you if you haven't heard of MS13, please Google it. Educate yourself. They're very dangerous. Um, but in this yeah, area It's one of the largest you, largest gangs in uh, well, actually, in the world right now. In the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's br- mostly brought to this country by uh, South and Central American gangs. And this area, we have a lot of migrant workers and and obviously illegal aliens and that kind of thing. But you see these tags, these MS thirteen tags, um on the on the wall by gas station, just not even a mile from my house here. Um, there's a certain area that they're everywhere. They're all over the wall, they're all over the place and it happens to be this one particular little trailer park. And that place scares the crap out of me, man. I don't I don't wanna I don't want to be around it. I sure don't want to break down there, that kind of thing. Because you can tell by the density of the icons that that is um, their anchor point, and I don't want to be there. Um, other icons that you might notice would be different symbols, flags, even colors, right? Um, the big ones we think about, and there's all kinds, but the big ones we think about are blue and red, right? Blue is the color of the crypts. Red is the color of the bloods. So those are classics, right? People get shot and killed because they had the wrong color on. You know, they were walking down the street and had the wrong color on. They were in a blue area and they should have shouldn't have been wearing red. So they they killed them. Um, so it's very important to keep an eye. You know, know where these things are so you can avoid them. Um, going back to icons on a person. The the big ones we look for are tattoos mostly. As we we said, they're permanent, right? They they have extreme significant meaning a lot of the times. A lot of times you may not even know what it is. Uh, The the location of the tattoo may have some special meaning, uh, but they typically indicate membership in a certain group. You you were talking about uh, the number 13, the teardrop. Uh, You've seen them. um, uh, Some guys have spider webs, like on their elbows, that kind of thing. they're they're essentially identifying with a certain group. They may not even know each other, but at a glance, they know what kind of person they are, and they know where they've been. Um, It may, spiderwebs especially, I think, indicate uh, past incarceration, so they've been jailed. And for that reason, the person with a visible tattoo may not even, they may not be a criminal, but it is one of those things that peaks a little bit above the baseline. And so it's an indicator that you have to pay attention to. That person may not be a criminal, but don't discount them. And the reason for that is um, the number of people in the general population that have tattoos is somewhere around 10 or 15%. But among those people who have been to prison, it's two or three times higher than that. So if you're just playing the averages and you're playing the odds, uh, somebody with a lot of tattoos, odds are – Probably bent toward a criminal uh mindset uh other other personal icons how about clothing you know objects that people wear jewelry accessories things like that um if you see you know video or pictures and things like that of of gangs, they have a brand right they have a uh a brand just like coca cola does they all wear this kind of hat they all wear these kind of pants they all wear this kind of shirt and that kind of thing. That's so they can tell each other apart, right? They can distinguish themselves from uh, people outside the group and and, and vice versa. People know who they are. So when you see that, it's what we call a clue. Uh, How about something as benign as a bumper sticker? There's an icon for you, right? There's some iconography. Um, You can pretty much pull up behind somebody and tell what they believe, who they associate with, and that kind of thing. I try to be bumper sticker free because I don't want anybody to – to have any reason to, you know, put me on their radar. But the guy that has, you know, the Glock pistol sticker in the back window and the, uh, from my cold dead hand sticker on the bumper and that kind of thing, probably a uh, good bet he's armed, right? Um, or, that there's a, or, or that there could be a, a gun or a, there could be a firearm in the vehicle that uh, right. you could break uh, into and, and get. Be interested in that. Exactly. So criminals are interested in that too. And it happens, man. That kind of thing does happen. Um I that one of the things in our class that, that we talk about is don't display. You know, if you're why would you go out there with your, your Glock hat, your Smith and Lessons shirt and your N R A fanny pack? That you're you're screaming that, you know, I have a I have a gun on me. And if somebody wants it, you know, why why put yourself in that situation? Don't advertise. Um, but but think of it this way <laughs> Uh, you know, you're behind a, a pickup truck that has a bumper sticker that says uh, violence solves everything, right? And in the other lane, there's a there's a, a Toyota Prius with a bumper sticker that says visualize world peace. Which one of those guys do you think might, might be the biggest threat? I mean, there's, nothing's 100%, right? But you would probably think the guy that had the violence solves everything bumper sticker might have a propensity to uh, – to violence, commit violence. So yeah, these are, yeah. These are these uh, yeah, are interesting. They're,
1: they're are signaling that uh, at least philosophically, that they are willing to commit uh, violence.
2: Right. Or remember back when earlier we were talking about status or or perceived status. Yeah, maybe he just wants to be that kind of person, but you don't know. They're strangers. You don't know. Um we always go back to a baseline we always establish a baseline and then we look at behaviors right to indicate above and below the baseline so let's talk about baselines and anomalies and things like that as far as uh, icons as far as iconography um since icons all these things that we've talked about are not behavioral indicators they're not it's not body language it's not movement it's not biometrics or anything like that um you're going to have to really pay attention to determine a baseline for uh, a given location and you can do that by asking yourself some some questions what group is represented here Um, is is the message positive or negative that's a big one and we talked about just a few minutes ago uh, a negative uh, t-shirt a negative tattoo a negative uh, graffiti uh, is much more dangerous than one that how about how the local people respond to the iconography are they trying to remove it? I would tell you that they don't agree. Are they? Are they actively supporting it? That kind of thing. They may actually tolerate it. Um, support is indicated through their behavior, right? Uh, if they mimic the message, um, then obviously they're they're agreeing with the, with uh, the message. Tolerances may be indicated if they tolerate. Uh, those persons that are putting the, the, the graffiti, that kind of thing up there, they might might not necessarily mimic the message, but they don't remove the icon. They don't remove the graffiti. So it's just tolerance. It's not support, but it's not, they're not fighting against it either. Or they got tired of washing the wall every day. Um, rejection of an icon uh, would be dis- displayed by people trying to conceal or destroy it or remove it, right? They're, they're actually trying to get rid of that icon, that Graffiti, or that poster, or whatever it is, um, if the icon creates a proxemic push, remember we talked about pushes and pulls, uh, proxemic pushes and pulls. If people are avoiding that, you know, that particular corner, there's a lot of graffiti, and people are avoiding that corner. That's a proxemic push. They're avoiding it because they know something you don't know. There's danger there. It's it's some sort of an indication. Uh, if you talk about um, anomalies, there's two main anomalies to look for when you're looking at uh, icons and iconography. The first one is the sudden change of the iconography or sudden appearance where there wasn't any. If there was nothing and now there is today, that's a change, a sudden change. Or if the icons themselves changed, then you know there's some sort of new message there that you may have to figure out what it is. Um, if there's an attempt to conceal an icon um, say when uh, when the cops come down the road you know, the police come by um, it, it, there's I know you've probably seen it in videos and things like that a bunch of uh, gangbangers standing around flashing gang signs and stuff and when the cops drive by all of a sudden they're you know their are they're blue their gang related colors you know get stuffed in the back pocket they're not flashing you know, they shove their hands in their pockets and they all stand around and Quote, act naturally right they're trying to remove those uh, displays they're covering them up so there's an anomaly right. it was there a minute ago now it's not that's an anomaly um, so to summarize iconography uh, it's not a controllable human behavior um, so it can be masked it can be concealed like we just talked about it, it will require some sort of interpretation and you may not be right that a lot of these things I've studied ms13 because that's who's here and i know when i see certain symbols what it means Uh, so a lot of these icons you're just going to have to educate yourself to know if it's okay to be there or not um icons can be geographic they can be personal remember they show beliefs and affiliations Um, they may mark territory but they always show some sort of group's belief and that kind of thing right personal icons are as we talked about were tattoos clothes uh, jewelry, accessories, things like that, uh, used to identify people within a certain group. They all use that. I call it branding. That's their brand. You know, they're they're all dressed the same. Um, but it does show their personal beliefs and their associations with other people of the same brand, so to speak. Anything you might want to add to the icons
0: part of it?
1: No, just that uh,
2: uh,
1: you can... Uh, and uh, a lot of it has uh, become blurred especially with gang clothing and sports affiliations and stuff like that but uh, uh you should anytime you're looking at a person and there's anything on them other than uh than regular non-marked clothing or moles or something like that uh it should be uh it, it should Draw your attention to it, and you should at least uh read it and make some type of uh uh of a decision some type of or, or just add it into your information inventory if you see somebody with uh, a t shirt that says something like you said earlier uh if they've got a t shirt that that uh whatever it says uh you use that to help you determine it if they have a uh, tattoos if they have uh Uh, a gold chain with a skull and crossbones, anything anything that is something other than just an unmarked item of clothing uh, or bare skin, then uh, uh, then there's a good chance that that will fall into the category of iconography. And you should use that to help you uh, establish these clusters or help you to establish uh, whatever type of baseline you're working on uh, when you're observing an individual or uh, or an area, I just think that uh, uh, you should get into the habit of doing this.
2: Yeah, and what you do, I call it building files. You're just like building a file. It's so, like I, in my head, you know, I'm, I don't really do this, but in, in your head what you're doing is you're, you're pulling out a file and you're stuffing that little piece of information in that file. Right. right, you're and opening after a file up on yeah. And you you build a pretty thick file after a while and then you've got a, a pretty good understanding of what's going on around you. So that's exactly what you're doing, yeah. Looking for those anomalies. Okay, let's move on real quick, then we'll try to wrap this thing up tonight. Um the last of the six domains of human behavior that we're gonna talk about is called atmospherics. And and atmospherics is gonna kinda wrap all of this together. Okay. Atmospherics is um A collective attitude that creates a distinct mood within an environment okay that's the definition what does that mean Um, it's a collective mood the mood of all the people that are in that particular environment in that particular situation it's a collective mood and it's displayed primarily through nonverbal behavior so that goes right back to the others right to kinesics biometrics proxemics that kind of thing this nonverbal behavior Is going to clue you in on what the collective mood, what the atmosphere is in that environment. And that's what we're going to call atmospherics. Situational awareness is going to be the primary means of determining this, right? If you're not aware, you can't do it. I know you've probably seen some of these security videos. Some of these YouTube videos are great where you know, there's a convenience store that's actively being robbed. There's a guy standing there with a gun actively robbing the convenience store, and on the security film, somebody bops in the front door and walks in stand, walks up behind the robber and stands behind him to get a pack of cigarettes, has no right. clue what's going on, right? Complete lack of, of situational awareness. You can't be that way. You have to be able to walk into a room and read the atmospherics and Atmospherics is going to be a combination of the other five domains that we talked about. You're going to be looking at the kinestics, how people move, what their intent is, what what about the biometrics, is somebody under stress? How close are people standing to one another? What's their relationship? How are they moving? All that good stuff. So you've got to have that. You've got to have that situational awareness. A combination of individual moods within a situation creates the collective mood of that situation, okay? So everybody kind of let that sink in for a minute. You'll understand. Remember that emotions generate honest signals. These are responses to stress that you cannot stop, right, and that we can, we can read these things. We can see them. We can observe these things and, and understand them. All right, now what I'm about to say, you're going to have to listen to it a couple times and let it sink in, but it made so much sense to me when I finally understood it. We always say... Wow, you know, you just had this sixth sense. You just knew something wasn't right. You just knew that guy didn't. He didn't look right. There was something about that guy. I just had a feeling about that guy, or I just had a feeling about that I shouldn't go in there.
0: How did you do that?
2: Do you have do you have ESP? Are you psychic? No. Here's why. The these uncontrollable, automatic, autonomic responses are generated in the primitive part of your brain. It's called the amygdala. This little core part of your brain is your animal brain it's the most primitive part of your brain and that little amygdala is taking all of your senses and looking for threats and looking for dangers and because the amygdala is the part that's responsible for detecting threats and the part of your brain that's responsible for preparing your body to meet those threats It's already geared up and gearing your body up for action before you even become aware of it. So in other words, these emotions and moods are first experienced subconsciously. You don't even know it's happening yet. And so that's why you will feel something is not right or feel something is going to happen before you think or become consciously aware that there's something not right or that something's going to happen. There's nothing magic or, or, or mystic or anything like that about it. It's just your subconscious brain preparing your body, before your conscious brain understands what's going on. Your conscious brain is always the last guy on the scene. Now, that being said, the more attuned you are to your own emotional responses or your gut feeling, or your your that doesn't seem right, the faster you can understand what's going on, and the faster You can make a decision and the faster you can keep yourself safe right you can get out or do what you need to do to keep yourself safe and those around you now one of the things about humans is moods and emotions are contagious especially negative ones right if you think about it um, you have a big crowd of people that turns into a riot there's almost always one guy or two guys typically have a microphone and they get people whipped up with all sorts of negative emotions, anger, fear, you know, uh contempt, things like that. They get them all whipped up and it's it's contagious. People tend to mimic people around them. And think of how a crowd will act when they get all whipped up. The more negative the crowd um becomes the more propensity they have for violence right so and that's just one of those things when you see it starting to happen just leave get out of there Um, atmospheres can be either positive or negative but if you walk into a room and the atmosphere is positive it doesn't mean you let your guard down right as um as gavin de becker said in the gift of fear you should always have a mindset that an attack is going to occur right now always be looking for anomalies always be checking that baseline and making sure that the behavior reflects the baseline so just because it's positive doesn't mean you can let your guard down and the other thing to remember is things can go from a positive atmosphere to a negative atmosphere very quickly and and that you know gets into the psychology of of, um, you know mob uh, mob action mob thinking that kind of thing so uh, when you walk into a, a situation you will always reason first from your feelings in other words something doesn't feel right something that guy doesn't look right that guy doesn't seem right you always reason from your feelings first and then confirm that based on what you observe And, and it has to be that way because remember the amygdala the subconscious mind has already figured this stuff out before your conscious mind comes to realize it so right the lesson here is If something doesn't feel right, listen to that little voice. There's a little voice telling you this isn't right. You don't need to go in there. Turn around and go the other way. Listen to your little voice. That amygdala, that little animal part of your brain, is usually right. Um, When you're observing a situation from a distance, I was the guy today. I was, I don't know, 20, 20 yards away from the guy probably. I couldn't hear what he said. I had to go completely on what I saw, right? I had to look at their proxemics. I had to look at their biometrics, look at the way they move, their kinetics, and that kind of thing. So when we're breaking down the atmosphere of a situation, you walk into a room or you're looking at a a situation, you have to determine what the atmosphere is by going back to the six domains. And I'm going to keep repeating these, so eventually we're going to get them all. But checking out the proxemics and the kinesics, right? Uh, how far apart are people from one another? That will tell you their relationship, won't it? It will also tell you their intent. Uh, identify – when you look into a crowd, identify who people are avoiding, who are people moving toward, who are they attracted to. Um, aggressive moving, movement um, – towards something a rapid movement away from something indicates danger earlier we were talking about you know you're standing in the store and everybody in the store is running toward the back of the store and going through the little door marked employees only That's the clue right that indicates danger um how about the iconography messages in the environment set a move for that area and here's the thing the messages in the icons not only Um, Tell you about the beliefs and affiliations of the people that put them there or what are the people that are wearing them? They actually have an effect on the people around them and and people will react to those So look for those the clothes the accessories graffiti tattoos things like that and take all of this into account when you walk into a situation the other thing about um, atmospherics is we not only look for human behavior uh, in specific in those six domains but there's a lot of stuff that just sort of intrinsically we understand like noise right because every place has a certain noise level or a lack of noise right that is normal anything any more noise than that or any less noise than that indicates a threat um just a couple of days ago i'm out for my hike you know i'm hiking and it's really got a lot of rain and it's gotten really warm the last few days and the frogs are out and i'm walking and the frogs are deafening it's so loud but as i walk i'm walking in this cone of silence because you know as i approach the frogs they sense danger and they shut up and they don't talk until i get you know well past them and then they crank up again so in that case right the frog noise is normal the lack of frog noise isn't normal the baseline right and it could indicate a a threat you you know uh you've all seen the um especially comedies you know, somebody somebody looks up from what they're doing and there's nobody there where there was a crowd before, and the first thing they say is, Hey, where'd everybody go? You know, that's a clue. It got quiet and you looked up because it got quiet and there's nobody there. There's a reason, right? It should have a certain amount of noise. The other thing to keep in mind too is with noise, uh, is the is the the phenomena of auditory exclusion. And if you've taken any um of course, I know you guys probably talk about it, and I know I do in my classes too is under stress under extreme stress you you can't you will not hear things. There are people that you know they ask' them, well how many how many times did you shoot? I don't know, I didn't hear any shot.
0: They were the guy right. shooting
2: the gun, but they couldn't hear it, so it's called auditory exclusion. So there's another clue if it's if there's a lot of stuff going on around you and you're under a tremendous amount of stress, it may be quiet even when it when it shouldn't be and it's because of the auditory exclusion. Um, Another thing is activity. Activity is a great indicator because there's always a certain level of activity for a given situation, so that establishes a baseline. So, for instance, if you're at the New York Stock Exchange, uh, it it seems like chaos to me, and I'm sure there's some order to it, but there's lots of movement and lots of shouting and people motioning with their arms and things like that. That is the baseline. That's normal for the New York Stock Exchange. There's nothing unusual about that. But if I'm in Walmart, they understand and that's, it, and that yeah, they do. But if you're in Walmart and that's the kind of activity that's going on, you know, that's way way above the the baseline, right? It doesn't belong there. It, it's the wrong activity for that situation, so that's an anomaly. Uh, another thing would be, which we just touched on, was order, right? Order versus disorder, and this can be human activity, but it can also be a physical thing. Think about um, you know, you come home tonight to your otherwise ordinary, uh, orderly house where everything is in its place, and it's been ransacked. Well, if it's been ransacked, it's going to be very obvious to you because it's usually order there, and now there's disorder, and so that's a clue to you. Um, there's, I guess, there's certain rules that that govern uh, hum, uh, human activity, and anything that goes outside of that is suspicious. And I heard a term this week that I hadn't thought about in a long time. It's called the broken window theory, and you may be familiar with it. Um, It it was a theory that I I guess they actually tested it over in Europe and as an area where it was an industrial area. And there was an abandoned warehouse, and they broke a window. And then they just sat back and watched. Well, there was order there. But when the window got broken, it's – That's a that's a mark of disorder. Well, pretty soon, more and more windows started getting broken, and then graffiti started getting painted on the walls, and then people were you know had been kicking in the doors and going in and stealing stuff. Well, the point of that was that um, order, I mean, a disorder begets disorder, and that even a single element of disorder creates more disorder and further disorder. The reason you want to know about that is because, just like we talked about, the more disorderly a group is or a mob is, the greater their potential for violence, the, the mob mentality, right? So right. if you're in a group and everything is good, even if the atmosphere is positive and there's suddenly one negative thing, keep an eye on it because disorder generates exactly. more disorders.
0: how
1: but it certainly will. I mean if you have uh you have like you see you've got the uh the warehouse and everything looks fine until somebody uh somebody breaks a window and then that is almost like a signal uh to attract additional uh,
2: violence or additional damage you
1: know and and it will right
2: right yep yep and and that's that's on a human scale or a physical scale that it's the same thing um let's talk about finding anomalies associated with uh atmospherics, so you walk into a situation um if there's an immediate negative atmosphere, that's a clue. okay. You don't have to sit around and wait for a cluster. you don't have to look for you know two or three more things to make sure that I'm right here. A negative atmosphere is automatically taken as a danger signal do just don't stay there leave um another thing is. Individuals who do not fit the atmosphere, remember moods are contagious, right? Emotions are are contagious. These honest signals that people give off are contagious. So a negative mood can very quickly uh, infect the entire group, uh, even if it doesn't fit the mood at present. So you could be a a positive mood at present. If you see something negative taking place or some sort of negative, uh, honest signals going on, then watch out. Because it's infectious. Uh, the third thing is the atmospheric shift, and this one is uh, this is pretty interesting. You've all seen it. It's just a sudden change in mood, and it can be either positive or or, or negative. We're most associated with the, or more concerned with the negative because uh, it could be danger, but it could go either way. Um, it should alert us to look for other indicators. If there's all of a sudden an atmospheric shift, look for who or what caused the shift. Keeping in mind that you might have caused the shift, right? You ever, right. You ever walk up to a group of people, they were laughing and joking, and all of a sudden, as soon as they see you, they go, they just get quiet. That's right. an atmospheric right. shift. What caused the atmospheric shift? Your presence. Hmm. Wonder who they were talking about, right? Heroes, or someone else's.
1: Like you know, if you, if you yeah. see them stop and they and they look at some other individual, and they become quiet or subservient or apprehensive then uh, it's a great indication of a shift in the atmosphere
2: yep and I'll, I'll give you a, a good example one of the best I've had was in New York and I'm um, there's a really nice park uh, nearby and has lots of woods and it's mostly like paved roads going through. And there's always a lot of people there so I don't feel bad about walking there but they also have horse paths and like walking past it go back through the woods I mean for a long ways and one day I decided I was tired of the road, and I was just going to go back and see woods and trees and things that a southern boy wants to see. And so I just started walking. And as I rounded a the bend, there was a dip in the road ahead, and it went down to across the little creek, a culvert, and there was a guardrail on the side. Well, when I rounded the bend, there's three guys in the middle of the road yucking it up, laughing, cutting up, punching each other, that kind of thing. And the instant they saw me, they stopped. And they all quickly went over and sat down on the guardrail and started acting <laughs> normal, right? Acting normal. Well, go back to the to the uh, biometrics, right? You can only act naturally if you're naturally doing something. They weren't naturally doing that. They were naturally doing what they were doing before they saw me. Well, this put me on alert. Uh, fortunately for me, a, a lot of people have told me I look like a cop, and I, I think I had that going for me. And so you can process a lot of things in your mind really quick. And I instantly knew that if I turned around and went the other way, these guys were going to chase me down. I knew it. And so I made my mind up that I was going to bluff them. And I reached down and padded the weapon that I had in my right front pocket, which is for all of you that get the cable locks that comes with the new gun, they're perfect. They have about a 16-inch cable, cabled on a padlock, You can slip that thing down in your pocket, let it kind of hang out a little bit. You can hook your finger in that, and you can beat the ever-loving crap out of people with that thing. And you can get through airport security with it because it's just a lot. Well, that's all I had in my pocket, but I reached down and I patted it just to make sure that it was up there where I could get the thing. Now, remember what we talked about last week, that people who carry something concealed will often pat that area to make sure it's there, to make sure it's concealed, right? These guys, they knew that behavior because they do it, right? They saw that. They saw how I looked. They saw me pass that area, and they saw me eyeball them and not take my eyes off of them and walk straight toward them. And they just sort of shaped up. And, I, and they didn't say a word, and I walked right past them, and I did not dare to even turn around and see, you know, if they were coming up behind me. I just kept walking. I had my chest out and my head high, and I just bluffed them. And when I got far enough away, I looked back over my shoulder, and they were all still sitting on, the, uh, sitting on the guardrail. Could have been three guys sitting on a guardrail. Could have been three guys that were going to knife me and you know take my four dollars and seventy three cents. Who knows? But uh, the I point know is that there was that an atmosphere. Either in either
1: situation or whatever, either one, your your behavior was correct. Right. Right. Regardless of whether they were and three and nice is, guys you know? or three crooks, you
2: your behavior worked either way. Right, and and that's the thing is all these things that we've been talking about, you pretty much know already. Uh, we're just sort of refining it. The bad guys know this stuff too. They can read you just as quickly and easily, probably better than you can read them, because that's what they do for a living. They know how to pick out a uh, an easy mark. Right. So, but that was an atmospheric shift. Everybody knows what the atmospheric shift yeah. is now. Okay, so let's let's just summarize um, atmospherics. At- atmospherics is the collective mood of a situation or a place, and it can provide us with an immediate indication of danger. You've seen it where you walk into a place and it just did not feel right. You don't need a cluster. You don't need three indications. Turn around and leave. Um, and that uh, atmospherics are made up of information gained by uh, just human behavior, right, observing the six domains. The six domains are kinesics, body language, right, biometrics, those are those honest signals that we see, proxemics, that's how people use the space around them, how they interact with each other, geographics, how they behave in a certain area, iconography, tattoos, branding, their clothes, graffiti, and then atmospherics, which is what we're talking about now. Um, Positive atmospherics may indicate safety, but don't let your guard down. Negative atmospherics indicate something leading up to a threat, right? Um, Look for noise level. Look for activity. Look for a sense of order or disorder. And look for those six domains and establish a baseline. And then look for any atmospheric shifts. Atmospheric shifts is just a sudden change from a positive to a negative, or from, uh, or from a negative to a positive, but it should alert you to a threat. And with that, we have covered the six domains, how to establish a baseline, how to um, find the clusters that you're looking for, the three clusters that you're looking for, which is uh, dominance or versus submissive, comfortable versus uncomfortable, interested versus uninterested. Those are the three clusters that you're looking for. So now we can wrap all of this up and bring it down to the main thing, which is how to decide to act. Because all of this doesn't do any good if you just stand there, right? It's deciding how to act. And that's never easy. Uh, This book comes from a combat uh, mindset. They have to be able to act quickly and correctly, right? And so that's what we're going to go by. Um, They established what the Marine Corps established what they call the Combat Rule of Three. And what that means is there has to be a threshold of a decision there has to be a point where no matter what you have to make a decision because if you hesitate or let let it go past that point or try to gain you know more information to come up with a decision you can get killed or seriously <coughs> hurt so there's going to come a point a threshold where you have to make a decision and what they what they use is what they call the combat rule of 3 when you see three anomalies or three indicators you must make a decision You don't hesitate. You don't wait for more information. When you see three anomalies, you make your decision. And remember, here's the thing. You don't need a perfect decision. You don't have time for a perfect decision. You just need a good decision. And three indicators, they've done a lot of studies, three indicators is enough to make a good decision. Now, that being said, as as we talked about last time, there are some times when all you need is one, right? A guy whips a gun out and starts shooting, that's the only indicator you need leave Uh, two may be enough right but try to find three and when three present themselves you must make a decision so look for clusters of clues based on the six domains that we talked about and remember three is enough when you see three clusters make a decision And the beauty of this is that the decision typically has already been made you've already said in your in your Mm -hmm. mind if X happens I will do Y right so, all you're waiting for is the trigger, and this saves a lot of time there's a lot of a lot of time savings by doing it this way now, we don't have the advantage that the military has, in other words, we can't go into Walmart with our pistol drawn just in case right in case there's something goes wrong in there. We can't do that um We also have the advantage in that tend to go away from danger and away from bad people okay. and away from bad things. Well, these guys don't have the the, uh, the choice. They move toward the danger. They move towards the gunfire, right? So theirs is a little bit different situation. They have an escalating scale, or I would call it a de-escalating scale. The first, it's three steps. The first is kill or prepare to kill. The second is capture, and the third is contact or question a subject, right? So they start with the very worst thing first, be prepared to kill somebody. And And they're setting on go right with all they have to do is strip that trigger they have to find those three clusters if they find the three clusters, the decision's already been made if If the three clusters don't pan out to kill it may indicate capture right we don't we can't do that not in this world as civilians so since we seek to avoid threats and not get into that situation, we're gonna do it a little bit differently. Our plan of action kind of works in the reverse I'll call it. i'll call it uh, an escalating scale, because it actually does. Our scale should go something like this. Run, cover, fight. And I, I I changed it around a little bit from the way the book went just because I wouldn't teach it that way because I think words mean things, and and, and I didn't like the word that they used. Um, but let's take the first one. The first step is run. So In, in your experience, now you've looked and you've checked out the six domains and you've looked for clusters, and you see a threat. To avoid conflict, put distance between you and the threat. It's that simple. It may not involve running, right? We're going to call the step run. May not involve running. Maybe just turn around and walk away from the situation. But the thing is, you always win 100% of the fights that you do not get in. It's that simple. If it's possible to just walk out the door, do it. The other thing that does for you is it shows your intent. You didn't go to the fight. You didn't antagonize the situation, so it shows your intent in case there's some sort of legal action later on. You were the guy that were trying to get out of there and avoid the conflict. It shows your intent. So the first step is run. The second step, I call cover because I think you should always be looking for cover. If there's something going on, you need to be finding cover. But what, what it entails is when you cannot avoid the conflict, right, you could not – You could not do the first thing. You could not distance yourself from it. Then it's up to you to put distance between you and the threat. In other words, if you can hide and they can't find you, then that's good. But create some sort of barrier between you and the threat. Now, hiding sort of means concealment, but cover is much better, right? Cover means they cannot hurt you. They can't shoot through it. They can't can't hurt you, so cover is always better, so find some cover. This does a couple of things for you. It buys you more time. And, again, it shows intent in case there's some sort of legal possibilities, you know, later on. It also gives you a tactical advantage most of the time because now you're in a position that you can you can watch, but they can't hurt you. And you can prepare and try to figure out what you're going to do next. So first step, run. Put distance between you and the threat. Second step, cover. If you can't avoid the threat, put distance between you and the threat. Hide, create barriers, get behind cover to buy some time. And then that may end it. That may end it, the uh, the entire conflict. If it doesn't, then the third step is fight. When all possibility of avoiding conflict is exhausted, and you know you're going to have to fight, then you fight with any means you have available to stop the threat. It's just that simple. Okay. So our escalating scale. Once we've once we've made all these um, uh, discoveries and we've we've checked all the, the biometrics and the proxemics and everything, we've come to the idea that this is this is a threat run. Put distance between you and the threat. If you can't, cover. Find cover, put something between you and the threat. If the threat continues, fight with everything you've got with any means available. So if we bring this all together now, everything that we've talked about, preventing a violent situation requires identifying the threat before anything can happen. And that means staying in remember we talked about Cooper's Uh, condition yellow right staying in condition yellow but you've got to do more than that you you have to be able to take action you have to be willing and, and able to take action to keep yourself safe that can only happen if you're in condition yellow but you you have a mindset that allows you to go to condition orange and then condition red if necessary or scale it back down to orange and back to yellow if that's what it takes but you have to be able to do that. Uh, not everything requires kill, not everything you know requires run. You've got to be able to move up and down that scale based on the observations that you have from um you know your observation of human behavior that we've been talking about or your gut feeling. Um, since nonverbal communications is the majority of our communication, probably sixty to ninety percent, then we use the six domains of behavior to assess the situation. Use the six domains that we talked about to establish a baseline and look for anomalies. Um, the reason for this is you, you, you observe these indicators, try to remove yourself from the situation. If you end up reacting to what happened, you're definitely slower than the other guy, right? Because action beats reaction every time. What we're trying to get to is getting ourselves to a point where we're acting first, Everybody else is reacting. We're acting first because action beats reaction every time. That brings us to the P word, right? Profiling, that dirty, dirty, dirty word profiling, right? Uh, Although it's become a dirty word, the ability to profile is probably the most valuable tool you have, you know, to keep you safe. Uh, Simply using the six domains of human behavior to predict what may happen. Look for patterns. Establish a baseline. Look for anomalies profile. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. Keep yourself safe. If you're looking around, you're trying to figure out what's going on, look at the atmospherics of the scene. What's the general feeling of the situation? What's the common emotion uh, going on? Is it positive? Is it negative? Uh, what are the common behaviors of everybody involved? Are they comfortable, uncomfortable, relaxed, aggressive, angry? You know What's, what's going on? Uh, what defines the scene? Is there order or disorder? Is it crowded? Is it busy? Is it slow? And don't forget the icons. Icons are a great indicator on clothing, uh, graffiti, tattoos, things like that. Use proxemics, uh, the way people move to figure out uh, if their behavior is normal or if it's an anomaly. Does it go well outside the uh, the baseline? Uh, look around to see if you're in a habitual area or an anchor point. Don't forget the anchor points and what that means. If you think you're, you're looking at an anchor point, how do you know? by the way people act, right, their behavior. Figure out who owns it, who controls it, what behavior makes it an anchor point, that kind of thing. It always goes back to behavior. Um, Are you being pushed or pulled to something, or is something being pushed or pulled to you? Look for natural lines of drift. If people aren't using the natural lines of drift, right, the way people would ordinarily travel, then that's well above the, the baseline. Something's wrong. Uh, think about honest signals. Human behaviors are driven by emotions, right? And reactions to emotions are honest. Look for biometric uh, cues in people such as distress, anger, anxiety. Remember, people can't multitask very well. If they're doing something naturally, then it looks like they're naturally doing it. Look for smuggling behavior. Remember, we talked about not necessarily smuggling, but somebody hiding something. They're hiding something. They're hiding their intentions and that kind of thing. Um, look, look for the icons, bumper stickers, T-shirts. That kind of thing. And then last, decide and act. Remember the old OODA loop Colonel Boyd came up with? Everybody's probably seen the OODA loop, the observe, orient, decide, and act. This is where people hang up. They tend to hang up in the loop around the decide and act part. They see what's going on, but they can't decide and act. Hopefully all the stuff that we've been talking about will, will make you able to act faster. How can you decide and act faster? Let's use the combat rule of three. Right. When you when you have three indicators, three clusters, you must act. Don't wait for four. Three is enough. Some only require one. Right. The guy whips the gun out and starts shooting. That's the only cluster you need. But most of the time, find three. Um, use the three-step escalating scale that we talked about. First step, run. Put distance between you and the threat. Right. This shows your intent. It looks good legally. If that can't uh, stop the threat, cover. Uh, hide, conceal, but cover's better. Get something solid between you and the threat. This gets you some time. It shows your intentions. It's great for uh, legal intent later on, and that may end the conflict. If you cannot avoid the conflict from that point, then you're going to have to fight. And remember, when you've got a fight, that surprise and violence of action will win every time. You You have to fight with everything you've got and you have to stop the threat, and you have to win. Um, m- mindset is the biggest thing. Everything that we've discussed up till now is probably worthless if you don't have the proper mindset. Train yourself to practice <laughs> until you get really good at it. We do a good job of um, training. I can train you how to shoot a okay. pistol really well, and I can train you how to move and shoot, and I can train you all kinds of stuff like that. But th- isn't that the last step? That's the fight step, right? We want to do the first two steps. We, we don't even want to get into the first two steps. We want, to, um, we want to detect the threat before we even get into those those three steps, the run, cover, fight uh, part. So that means you're going to have to remain attentive to your surroundings, stay in the Cooper color code yellow. And this system that we've outlined, using the six domains, looking for three clusters and that kind of thing, can be practiced. So practice it every day. Go somewhere um, that you can observe. I mean, I've had fun with it today, you know, at the mall, just watching people and figuring people out who was, you know, who had a relationship with who and what that relationship was and who was dominant, who was submissive, who was interested, who was uninterested, all these things, practice it, and you get really good at it. Remember, uh, start at the feet and work up. What do their movements tell you? What do their biometrics tell you? That kind of thing. So using all those observations, establish a baseline for that location. And then just continue to observe people until you can predict what they will do in a given situation. And it's not that hard. Uh, you know, When I saw the guy in the hoodie today, five seconds, I knew he worked there and I knew where he was going. I predicted he was going to go through the door in the back corner, and that's exactly what he did. Um, take your notes, but eventually get to the place where you don't need your notes. You know, to, to I, I'd carry a list of the six domains, and I would just sit and watch. I said, today I'm going to work on uh, Iconics and just start looking for Iconics. You know, things like that. Eventually, you get to where you can do it pretty quickly without that. Um, the goal is to increase your success rate and your confidence and your ability to profile. There's the P word again. Yeah, but it's going to keep you safe. Now, the authors of this book have um, a really great website. And uh, write this one down. It's www.cp-journal.com. www.cp, like Charlie Papa dash and they have a couple of places on that they have a blog that's really cool really interesting a lot of good stuff on it but they also have a behavioral library they have some training films and things like that that are really cool to watch and practice and learn to pick up on these cues so avail yourself of that and um if you get a chance and uh can get the book itself left of bang it's a fantastic read it's not a really big book and it's Short and to the point And I would highly recommend you read it And that's all I got
1: (laughs) Well that was great And
0: uh,
1: I want to make sure that people Understand that That all the stuff That we've been talking about last week and this week This is this, This Is not Uh the amount of time we talked about it and we discussed it, we're doing that to explain it to you so that you can practice doing it, just like uh, Richard was doing uh the other day when he was at the mall and uh and he's practicing it. We want you to practice it so that it becomes uh, second nature to you because you need to uh you need to be able to observe these behaviors you need to be able to recognize. Uh, the the different indicators and then once you have uh, some type of an indicator be able to rapidly uh, like we talked about earlier uh, open a file on it and see if you're going to get a cluster of three and then one of the most important parts is once you've uh, once you have the indicators that are necessary uh, in order for you to act. Then you've got to make sure uh, you've got to make sure that that you have a plan uh, for what to do when you're supposed to, when you're when you're ready to act. Because, like uh, like Rick was saying, we've got uh, uh, there's tons of examples of folks who. Uh, you see them standing there, and you can see the look on their face. It's, uh, they're in denial that anything's happening. And then once they really realize it's happening, then you can see again, once you can see the wheels turning again, they're trying to say, okay, well, what am I going to do about it? Well, when something's happening, it's much too late to be in the what am I going to do about it phase. You have to be in the – you have to be ready to be in the acting phase so that you're acting, and they're reacting to you, Uh rather than vice versa because being inside place is no good, especially in a self defense or a shooting incident, anything like that. Yeah. Yeah,
3: absolutely. All
1: right, I wanna thank uh, I wanna really I wanna thank you, uh, Rick for uh, giving us the uh, giving us the time last week and this week. And uh, like I said, if you guys did not catch the first part of the uh 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 last week's episode, be sure and go back and listen to that. And uh we'll see you this uh next week. Uh next Thursday, seven PM Central. And uh thank you Sam for uh for being there every time I'm here. Uh, God bless and keep you guys and uh and we'll see you next week.